Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Well, you got to feel ready. I don't know what to say, but it's been pretty awesome up to now. I could have, there's a real potential of me screwing this up. And that's devastating thought. Well, if you've been to our uh, new website, then you've seen this phrase right here. It comes across the top there. It says, eternal living now. And, uh, of course, those, the, the three words are the central focus of a vision statement that we've created or crafted, I guess you could say, over the last, actually, the last five or six months. And it really captures the heart and hope of Hillside. Now, and since, since, we've, since this phrase has sort of come to life for us, whenever I'm studying throughout the summer and different things, uh, this phrase, I mean, anything related to eternal life and eternal living just jumps off the pages to me, and I have found it everywhere. No matter where I look, I'm seeing this idea. And there's no place that it's any more beautiful and profound than in the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. I would probably could easily say that it's Jesus' clearest description of what eternal life is. Now, it's fitting that it would come in the context of a prayer, sort of this intimate, very personal, conversational relationship that he has with God, with his Father. And in this prayer, he literally opens up eternity for us in a way you can't believe. It's just beyond comprehension. In fact, no other text probably brings the reality of eternity and history together the way this text does. It, it, it reaches into eternity past, it looks into eternity future, and then it sort of pulls it all together in some historic moment that we'll see right here uh, in the here and now. It has amazing reach. And because of that, you get not a direct, but an indirect sort of understanding about why God created the world and why he decided to redeem it. Why did he do those things? And it happens in this text, all of that. And so it's much deeper than we could ever humanly express. But I want us to see three things as we look at this text. I want us, first of all, to see what eternal reality is, what ultimate reality is. I want us to see the historic hour that's at hand, and then the ultimate hope that lies before us. Those are the three things. And once those three things are done, you'll be able to answer these three questions. What is eternal life? Because when you look at eternal reality, when you look at ultimate reality, then you understand what eternal life is. But then when you look at the historic hour, you'll know how to get it 
how it has become available to us. And then number three, when you look at the ultimate hope that we have, you'll know what to do with it. Now, this is a very broad scope. We could have obviously done a very, very long series on this topic. I'm just going to hit you with one shot today. Let that hang over us for a while, and then sometime in the future, we will revisit this entire topic again. So I went online, and I was sort of scrolling through uh, different, when you, when, you know, when you Google eternity, what comes up? Every once in a while, I'll do that. And uh, a number of things came up, but one of them was quotes about eternity. So I hit it. And on there were just some amazing quotes about eternity. And then there was a picture of the person who gave the quote. And so I went through and I saw some stuff. Some of it was just ludicrous. Some of it was just utterly crazy. One particular girl, just her statement was this. When you live forever, what do you live for? And boy, I couldn't get that question out of my head. It it gnawed at me. Because that's a great question. When you live forever, when I say eternal living, what in the world are you doing for that long? One of my favorite quotes comes from a guy, I don't even think I can finish it right now, but it says, how brave do you have to be to contemplate an existence that never ends? I love that quote. So what, do you, what are we doing? Well, let's look at this text because it's just profound. First of all, the ultimate reality, and we'll understand what eternal life is. And this will unfold slowly, so you're going to have to just stay with me. We're going to take this one piece at a time. In John 17, 1, there's obviously a very critical moment. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he looked upward toward heaven, and he said, Father, the time has come. So that's the first thing, that, and this is for the word hour. The hour has come, which in the book of John you'll see is a, is a special moment in history. And here's what Jesus says, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. This is our key phrase right here. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. So Jesus is sort of, if you think about the hour being the cross, because that's what it is, that hour. In John, the hour is the cross. So if you think about that, so what I'm going to do, we're going to take you behind the cross, and we're going to get a glimpse of the cross from a perspective maybe we haven't thought about it in a long time, or maybe ever. And when he does that, he's going to take us into eternity past, and he's going to show us what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been doing forever, literally. And they've been glorifying each other. That's what they do. In chapter 16, you see the Spirit glorifying. So there's this, this, this Godhead, this Trinity, glorifying each other. So this mutual glorifying has been going on For eternity. In fact, even Jesus says in verse 4, let's see where it is, verse 4, 
I glorified you on earth. Now he's speaking in past tense about the cross as if it has already happened. But my whole earthly existence, in other words, what I'm doing here on earth, we've been doing for eternity. I'm just doing it here now. Glorifying you here by completing the work that you gave me to do. And then notice what Jesus says. And now, Father, glorify me at your side. So he's thinking of future going back into heaven. And and, and look, with the glory I had with you before the world created. So here's this word again. This glorified and glorify and glory. We have been doing this forever, what it is you and I are doing. We've been doing it infinitely for all eternity. So here's the thing. Whatever this moment, historic moment is that Jesus says, because remember the first words out of his mouth are, the time has come, this hour, this cross. So whatever the cross is, you're going to see a different glimpse of it now. Whatever this moment is, it's the outworking. The cross, then, is the outworking of who we have been for eternity. That's what the cross is. Such that you really can't understand the cross, as we'll see, without understanding who the Father, Son, and Spirit are and how they relate to one another and how it gives way to a cross. But you've got to understand two words. Glory and glorify. Because what is, do they mean? So what basically what we're, <laughs> they're the best words to describe what it means to be a part of the Godhead, the Trinity. What it means to be God. One God in three persons. An incomprehensible unity where three persons equally God equal one being. That's what we're describing. How do those three beings relate to one another is the essence of ultimate reality. We say, what is ultimate reality? It's the nature of God himself in relationship to himself. That's what it is. Understanding that unlocks literally everything it is that human beings long for, want to know. It unlocks all of it. So glorifying is the activity. So we've been glorifying each other. And in verse 2, remember he says, glorify me. So that's sort of, the, sort of the activity. And you know what that means. It means to lift up, to extol, to praise, to make over, to delight in, to, uh, to serve, to please. That's what glorifying is. All right? So you have this picture of three persons operating in absolute perfect harmony, relationally pouring themselves out into one another in infinite amount and degrees that we could never comprehend, and creating a glory, a glorifying, which creates the second word, which is a glory. What better way can I say what it looks like to be in perfect, selfless harmony in the Godhead That's a weighty reality. That's what glory is. Glory means weighty. It means reality. You say, what is is the basis of all reality? It's God in relationship, in perfect harmony. 
That's what it is. So what he means is, the, my glory is the summation of all that I am in light of this selfless existence of serving and honoring and loving each other. It's God in perfect harmony and happiness. That's the glory. And when we glorify each other, it's just all of us doing everything we can, everything in our nature to do, to honor the other one. That's what it is. Now, we're going to learn here, and we're going to see it in this text. We'll see it in these texts here. It's hard. I want to show you. I, had to, I wanted to put them together, uh, the 17 part, because what I want you to see is the language of glorifying is really the language of love. It's really the language of love. In fact, you will see Jesus say, uh, the glory that you gave me, I've given to them so that they may be one as we are, I and them and you and me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you've sent me and that you have loved me or have loved them just as you have loved me. So all of a sudden, glory sort of turns into loving. When I glorify someone, I love them. And for the Trinity to do it is infinite love. And then, in fact, uh, He'll say it again. I want them to be, uh, uh, let's see, uh, so that they can see my glory. What's my glory? What's the weighty reality of me and what I have with you? That you gave me because what? You love me. It's the language of love. And what you see is a harmony and a love within the Trinity that is incomprehensible. And it has been going on forever. It has never not been happening. So that the love you have loved me with may be in them. It's the language of love. Anyone who's ever been in love knows exactly what this means. Because when you get when you, when you love someone, the highest form of fulfillment you can receive is making them happy. That's, that's what love is all about. What can I do to please you? What will make you happy? I want to do what makes you happy. And by the way, the highest, the highest, that's the highest virtue of love. When you love, you're caring about somebody else. But the only way to be utterly fulfilled is, is to be filled by someone else's joy. That's the only way you're ever going to get full joy. And so that means God has been experiencing the joy of loving someone else more than they love themselves for all eternity. They've experienced the highest form of love you can experience. Never ever demanding, never ever self-seeking, never ever trying to glorify themselves, never ever trying to outdo anyone, never ever needing anything other than to totally honor the other one and being glorified in that. That's the Trinity. So when I say, what is ultimate reality? Everything, if that's eternal past that exists today, has grown out of that circle. 
of relationships. Everything that exists today has come out of that experience that God has had with himself. So perfect love operating in all these infinite ways is what brings about creation and redemption. And that's why understanding God as being a trinity, tri-personal, is so critical to the doctrine of Christianity. Because everything is based on that fact. I mean, why would a unipersonal God create? If he were all alone, why would he create? Well, you might suspect that he would create because he was alone. You might suspect that he was uh, in need of love, that he needed people to provide for him what it's impossible to provide for yourself even if you're God because you, you can't have love if you're alone. Because love is the giving of yourself to someone else. If there's no one else there, then he can't be a God of love. You say, what's a God of love? That's a God in relationship. You say God is love, you better, you better know that means there's a trinity. Otherwise, and so a unipersonal God would create because he needs you to love him. But a tripersonal God doesn't create so that you will love him. He creates so that he can share the love that he has. Do you see the difference? That's why you've you got to have a trinity. That's why the character of God is so critical to everything he does. Why did he create? He wanted to share his love. So if I could draw a picture for you, this is sort of the picture that I think of. So I'm drawing, this is a very, of course, so imagine that's the Trinity. It's three arrows functioning together, all seeking the glory of the other one. And so what you would call the interaction between them is what, when they glorify each other. That's, the, that's what's glorifying, just constantly serving and pleasing and loving and honoring and lifting up and extolling and praising and showing the wonders of the other one. That's what they do in there. And that sort of creates what, we would, what I would call a glory. You say, who is God? What's the glory of God? It's all that he is in this dynamic relationship. All of his character and qualities and selflessness and all of it is all pictured here. That we would call glory. Jesus actually translates that into, it's a love for each other beyond comprehension. That's what it is. And so what happens is, is Jesus in this prayer is sort of literally exposing the heart of God as being a selfless, loving being, an eternal, because he's existed before the creation of the world. And so now the question becomes, if God's going to share that love, how is he going to do that? How is he going to open this up to beings who are not like him? 
who don't love like you. God created us, we fell, became sinners. How are sinners going to enter that circle? Well, some phenomenal thing is going to have to happen, and this circle is going to have to open up. It's going to have to open up and let others into it. I don't know, you've experienced this, but you know how stingy you are about who's in your circle? Have you ever felt the stinginess of your circle? Like if you'd said, we don't want anybody else in our small group. Have you ever said that? How many of you have ever said that? Does that sound like God? See, when we get in our circle and it's operating really well, like infinitely well, which you've never experienced, you've got a, like a microcosm of what God experiences, and it's so special to you that you're selfish about it. We can't even love without being selfish. And that's why, I see it. That's, why, that's why I love this quote by Dallas Willis, one of my favorites. He says, it must have been no small thing to make it possible for human beings to receive the eternal kind of life. And yet somehow God has to arrange for the delivery of eternal life to people like us. Yeah, you're right, Dallas. It must have been no small thing to make that arrangement. And yet, Jesus is in the moment in history that has been thought about throughout all eternity because you ought to believe this loving, selfless group of people never ever existed with the thought that they would never open it up to anyone else. They never even had that thought. It was always just this eternal scheme of how do we get it to other people? Well, we're going to have to create because we want them to know our love. And they're going to screw it up, and so we're going to have to love them even more. We're going to have to show them a little bit more of who we are in redemption. Because there's going to have to be a cross involved. There's a death. That's the second thing I want you to see. The ultimate reality is God gloriously loving the historic hour is the hour that Jesus made. You say, how do you get, if that's what eternal reality is, being in that dynamic with God. By the way, is anyone not one in there? Anyone say, I'm out. Anyone? Well, how do you get in? You know, what's the, well, here Jesus, you know, says, you know, the time has come the hours come. Now, that means, you know, to say hour means that through all eternity, God has, uh, this is what one commentator said, the sovereign, unalterable precision with, with which God operates his redemptive plan. There's a moment in history where eternity comes into history to make it possible for human beings to enter that circle. And the cross is the place where Jesus says, glorify me there so that I can glorify you. So that means, this is, hang on, Hillside. This beautiful, loving relationship is about to be put on display for human beings to see and try to grasp. 
we're sitting here trying to figure out how do we understand eternity? How do we understand eternal reality in the Godhead? And the only way it can really happen, see, the only way to really know who God is and how loving and selfless they are is a cross. That's why God could never have really decided to reveal himself if a cross wasn't involved, because we have to show them the depths of our love. How do you show that? And so, the glory of God, all that He is, the weightiness of what He is, is put on display in the cross. His mercy, His power, His righteousness, His judgment, His wrath, His grace, all come together in one spot. So human beings can get a glimpse and want and long for what they were created for to begin with. So Jesus says, glorify me. Let me show how sacrificial we are. Let me <laughs> do for them in display what you and I have been doing for each other in eternity infinitely. And by doing it, we can invite them in. So that means the cross is at least two things. It's your way in. But it's also God doing what he has always been doing. So let me put it to you this way. The cross is God loving himself first. Then it's loving you. Because the cross just pictures what God has been doing with God for all eternity. Have you ever heard this by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, it's one of the quotes you ought to remember by him. It's one of my all-time favorites of his. He says, In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of all creation and of all being. Because that's what they have been doing, right? That's what they're doing here. This is just self-giving. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm of all creation and all being, the whole purpose of reality. We just saw what ultimate reality is. For the eternal word gives himself in mortal sacrifice, and, not, and that not only on Calvary. It's not like only the cross is the only place you've ever seen God be loving. No, it's been existing in eternity. That self-sacrifice you see here is what he, they've been doing for each other for. And so C.S. Lewis says, For when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done at home in glory and gladness forever. Golly, let that sink in, please. It's just giving me chills right now. When God came to the outlying provinces in the wild weather of history and reality, and what he did here, is only what he had been doing for all eternity here. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? What a thought. That the cross is not so much. I shouldn't say that. Let's, let's rephrase that. The cross is not only how we get in. The cross is God demonstrating their love for us. That's why the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when the hour has come is, this is the time where we get to do, Father, what you and I have been doing for all eternity. You glorify me and I glorify you. Do you see that? That's what the cross is first. 
Let me tell you why that's important. So <laughs> I'm reading this other book, reading this other book, and I'm just reading it little bits at a time. Uh, it's called The Things of Earth. Sort of a wild book. I, Anyway, there's one chapter in there that I really like, and here's what he says. He says, God's love for God is simply God's love for God in us. You say, what is God ultimately giving us? He's just, what Jesus comes to offer us is God's love for God himself. You just come into it, and you love him the way he loves himself. Do you see? That's what God is giving you. And so that's what the cross allows. It's such a great So all of a sudden, in one moment, because you understand the Godhead, the cross has become more wonderful and more horrible all at the same time. Do you see that? How wonderful of a God to show that kind of love and be willing to share it when you and I know how selfish we are with our circles. It makes the cross all that more wonderful. But it also makes the cross all that more horrible because what would it mean to give up this love? What does it mean to open it up for others to be in it? Well, just think of it this way. If after this service somebody comes up, and I heard somebody say this, so I thought it was a great illustration. If after the service, somebody I do not know in here, your guest, you walk up to me at the guest info booth and you say, you know what, I hate you. And I never want to see you again. Okay, it's been said before. It wouldn't be terribly new to me, but it would still hurt, even though I don't know you. Uh, But if one of you that have been attending Hillside for quite a while said, I hate you, and I never want to see you again, that would hurt a little bit more, do you understand? And if one of my sons were to come up to me after the service and say, I hate you, and I never want to see you again, do you understand the level that that would hurt me? No offense to those of you who attend Hillside and and I love you. And then how much more would it be if Gail said to me after the service, I hate you and I never want to see you again? You can see the level. So imagine infinite love saying to the other one I'm going to have to turn my back on you in order for you to save these people so at the cross there's a moment when Jesus says my God my God why have you forsaken me and at one time in the reality of all existence Jesus feels that disconnect that he's never felt in his entire life. And you say, how horrible of a moment was that? Infinitely horrible. That means the cross is horrible to the Godhead, in a sense. Not just horrible as we look at it and think a crucifixion. It's more horrible than you could have even thought. Say, what happens when 
when you see ultimate reality, and then it opens up in the historic hour, what has just happened? Well, this is what John says has just happened. Glorify me as I have glorified you, and in verse 1, just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give what? Eternal life to everyone you have given him. What's eternal life? It's the life we've been living. We're going to let them in to an eternal reality. We're going to let them into the eternal reality. We're letting them into our circle. That's what eternal life is. You got brought into that circle. That's why Jesus prays that you'll know what it means to live in that circle. And do we understand what it means to live in that circle? Remember when Peter said, you alone are the one who has the words of eternal life. You better believe he's the only one. He's the only one that understood what it was, and he's the only one who could have provided it. He's the only one who could let us into that circle. And Jesus is simply saying here, I want them to have this life. Because that's what we came here to do. So we can see his purpose for creation is to let us into the circle. The purpose purpose of redemption is to get us back into that circle that we lost. Now this is eternal life. Look, Jesus is going to come right out and say it. That they know you. You say, what does that mean? That they are in relationship with you. And if you're in relationship with God, you're doing what he's doing. You're glorifying him. And you become part of that glorious picture of who God is. It's displayed in your life. When you love him, like the Son loves him, and like the Spirit loves him. That's what it is. Say, what's eternal life? It's loving God the way the Son loves him. It's loving the Son the way God loves him. That's what eternal life is. In relationship with God, selflessly giving to others. Because you'll never find fulfillment unless you do that. Because not even the Godhead finds fulfillment outside of that. That's what it means. That's why, by the way, he'll say it's so important you understand what salvation is. If you, if, you, if you understand eternal life to be a destination, then you think about, well, I guess it all starts when we get there, as if it were something out there. Jesus will not let you do that with eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. This is not a, that's not a location. If you only think of eternal life as et- John 3.16, God will love the world, whoever will love not perish, but have everlasting life. Because one of these days, you're either going to go that way, or you're going to go that way. <laughs> that's how we use John 3.16. As, as if they were directions to a place. It's not, it's not directions to a place. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. It's, and it's not a duration. Because the duration forces us to ask, well, what are we going to do for all that time? Just staying around? 
as if it were a place you get to and stand around. It's just forever. That that doesn't bring anything together. But if I tell you that eternal life is knowing God and so that wherever he is, I'm with him, and I can know him now. I don't have to wait till I get somewhere. And it's only everlasting because he is. And so I enter this sort of undying, loving relationship. Salvation is looked at completely different. In other words, it's just God's life imparted to us, and we're caught up. In other words, we have what he has. That's what eternal life is. I have what he has. So C.S. Lewis said this. He describes it as a dance. The whole, <laughs> he says, the whole dance or drama and pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern. This pattern. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. C.S. Lewis calls it a dance. It's a great way to look at it. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught up by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. You see? They are not a, this is a great line, they are not a sort of prize which God could, even if he chose, to just hand out to someone. Not something you can hand someone. Eternal life is not something I can, I can just give you. I've got to bring you in to have it. He is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of all reality. And if you're close to it, the spray will wet you. And if you're not, you will remain dry. And once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? That's just a byproduct. Love that. Once a man is separated from God, what can he he do but wither and die? What happens if you're not in that dance? So to know God is to be in a relationship, to be in this dance. In other words, let's just put it practically here for a second. Uh, because this is, I know, this is sort of, but another, the only way to be rescued from our pathological self-obsession is to be caught up into, is to, is to finally, for someone to, to be adequately loved. You say, how do I get healed from my self-centeredness and the closing of my own circles? And, you know, seeking significance and security and love and, and how I can count in this world some way, shape, or form. How do I get out of that rat race? You've got to enter another one. You've got you to be adequately loved. And see, the cross is the place. The only thing that can heal you from your pathological self-obsession is to be loved and so overwhelmingly loved that you no longer have to seek anything for yourself. Because you're caught up in a dynamic where you find that the only way to be fulfilled is to not seek self-fulfillment. Isn't that what Jesus said to us? You want to come after me? You want to live? Then lose your life. Jesus is just showing us what all reality is based on. Not a religion. It's all reality is based on this because that's who God is and everything was created from him and redeemed from him. And if you want it, you've got to give up 
You can't get. You can't take. You can't seek. I'm a relatively new uh, fan of John Mayer. Okay, I love his music. And if you live with a guitarist, then you know, then you know why. Because he's a genius on the guitar. And so, and plus his lyrics, his songs are just profound. And if you listen to his live concerts, and I have all of his albums, and I listen to them pretty regularly, and uh, in one particular concert he's in, he's playing and he stops and he speaks. And he says to the crowd, I've got to share something with you. I've tried every approach to life. I've gone through this cycle more than once of just buying things to make me happy. And it hasn't worked. And then I've gone places. I've had the privilege in my life because of who I am. To, I've been places many people w- w- could dream of and never go. And then he says, I've accomplished things that people wish they could accomplish. And he says, none of them have worked for me. I've made a name for myself. None of it works for me. And then he just said, I got to tell you, the only approach left, he says this, is love. What it means to really and truly be loved, that's the only thing that I have left. Now, he doesn't know how prophetic his words are. Now, when he says love, I don't know what he means by that. All I can tell him is it won't come from another human being. It won't come from another human being. And what John Mayer is expressing in those words is the, is the essence of every human being who until he gets loved or she gets loved that much can never understand what it means to be fulfilled. Because when you get loved that much, you don't have to seek it anywhere else. You can give it. And if you're not in that cycle, then you're not living eternally. You're not, you don't have the, a life that has the quality of eternity. And so in Jesus, we're adequately loved. And that leads me to the final thing. You see eternal life and what it is. You're just caught up into that relational life. And then our final thing here, and I'll do this quick for you. It's our ultimate hope. What do you do with the eternal life? We see what it is. It's God interacting with himself here. That's what the text is telling us. And then we see how we get it. It's the historic hour. Eternity past literally comes in into reality here on a cross where God is displayed and we see it and we realize that we are loved beyond, infinitely loved beyond comprehension by by God just doing what he's always been doing and that is sacrificing. And we get in on that. We are now in on that circle. Well, what do you do once you're in it? Well, that's what I want you to see, the ultimate hope. What do you do with eternal life? Well, look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Let me just tell you one of the things that you're going to do forever, and you were made to do it. And I don't know if you guys have a job or you do anything that you love to do, and when you do it, you think, I was made for this. But I guarantee if you can say, I was made for this about anything in your life, 
How many of you say, that's a glorious moment in my, in my life when I'm doing something I was made for? Well, let me tell you what you're going to be doing for eternity. You will never be standing around doing nothing. You will be doing what you were made for, and that is glorifying God. In infinite, imaginable ways, you say, well, I don't know what we're going to be doing when we get there. That's because you're not infinite. But what if I told you there'd be infinite ways for you to conceive and accomplish glorifying God, which is exactly what you were made for? Now, how much does heaven sound better to you there? You'd be doing exactly what you were made for in ways you cannot conceive of now. Well, I'll take that. Anybody not taking that? Well, that's eternal life. That's the ultimate hope. We're going to be with him. Why? Because somehow this eternal God in infinite loving relationship infinitely longs for me to be in that circle. That's love. That's the ultimate hope. Now, so you say in verse 25, <laughs> this, is, this is just a sad verse, but look at it. I just want you to stop and just say, look at this phrase right here. Since, this probably be better translated since. Since the world does not know you. Now just stop for just a second. We've just said eternal life is knowing him and being in that circle and being in the cycle of glorifying him by being selfless. Oh my goodness, you mean to tell me there's a world that doesn't know him and this is on the heart of God and it exists on the heart of God. And yes, we have this ultimate hope of eternity. But what are you supposed to do with that hope? What are you supposed to do with the fact that you found it? You've got to realize that there's a world that doesn't know him. This breaks God's heart because all the way through here he's saying, God, doing do in them what you've done in me so that the world will know that I've sent you. Did you remember that phrase? About three times in this, these short verses. Because if we include them in the circle, we've got a bigger circle and we can just, we can, we, we, more people can see it and more people as a result will be invited to it. The world doesn't know you. And here's what C.S. Lewis says about this, because if it's heaven to be in that circle, what is it to be out of it? From the highest to the lowest, C.S. Lewis says, self exists to be abdicated. And by that abdication becomes the more truly self. See, what Jesus is offering us is the way to become who we truly are and what we were truly created to be. To be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so forever, to just be less selfish and forever. And he says, this is not a law which we can escape. What is outside the system of self-giving, what's outside the system of self-giving I drew for you is simply and solely, Lewis says, hell. It's the fiery imprisonment in the self. Self-giving is the absolute reality. And see, what this is statement in here is Jesus knows, man, if you're not in that circle, you don't know me. And if you don't know me, verse 3 says, you don't have eternal life. And so <laughs> that means the welfare of every conscious being in existence depends on the knowledge of God. And Jesus' whole point in verses 20 to 26 is to say, you know, I didn't bring you in the circle so that you could just go find a place to hide. When you're brought into this circle, what I have done for you is supposed to be observable. Father, I want the world to see it. 
I want them to be so that they can see my glory. Uh, the world does not know you. I know you. I, I've made known your name to them. See, that's what the circle does. And we'll continue to make it known so that the love that you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in. In other words, I want that whole thing to be working so that it's observable. I am not praying on their behalf only, but on behalf of those who believe through their testimony that they will be one just as the Father we are one. I pray that they will be in us so that the world, the world will believe that you sent me. We can't, whatever it is we're giving them, and he says, I'm giving you their, my glory. The glory that you gave to me. Hillside, <laughs> yeah. let this sink in. It's just it's the highest spiritual thinking. I can't think any higher spiritually than this text allows me. The glory you gave to me, Jesus says, I have given to them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I have that. Anybody in here like freaked out? (laughs) Yeah, you've been brought into the circle. You've been brought into the glory of living for something other than yourself. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be completely one. So that, here it is again, so that the world will know. You say, what do you do with eternal life? What do you do with the fact that you have ultimate hope? It better be observable in your life so that others can see it. Otherwise, you get into that circle which God opened, and then you close it. You close it by your selfless living. You close it by not committing every day to wake up and glorify God. You, you close it. What do you do with eternal life once you've been given it? You open it up to others by the way you live. Hey, PG, follow. You've just been given eternal life. What are you going to do now? I'm going to heaven. <laughs> You're opening it up to others. You monkey. You do what God has been doing. This is all the language of completion. Read it yourself because we just don't have time. I'm already out of time. It's all the language that's already been done. I'm giving them what you've already given me. It's all done already. Eternal life, you've got it if you know Jesus Christ. You already have it, and it's supposed to be living out of you now. Open it up to others. That's why we have, I'll close with this. This is why we have this mission statement. We have a vision statement. We're going to be in authentic relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, which leads us into a life of eternal living so that his will and his ways will be accomplished in our life. That's our vision statement. Eternal living now, let's do it now, what we have now with one another. And then the mission, what are we, what are we supposed to do when we leave here? After we've been in sort of the, the circle, the Trinitarian circle together, we're supposed to go help people discover who Jesus is because he is the only one who can lead us and apprentice us in eternal living. He's the only one. Companionship and apprenticeship 
to Jesus is the only possible way that our ordinary human lives and every single thing we do in those lives can actually take on the quality of eternity is only found in him. And when you obey him, your life takes on the quality of eternity. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has this eternal life. Has it, not will get it. The one who does not have the son of God does not have this eternal life. Ah. I'm beside myself. I know you're clapping for that because I can't even put in words what's there. Not adequate, not adequate words. The fact that we're all still sitting and we'll probably all go eat something now is probably the fact that we didn't fully get it. That's all of us. I don't even know how to take it in. But there might be a person in this room who's not in that circle. You've never come to really know who Jesus Christ is. And I'm going to tell you now, That needs to be number one priority. And if you've been on the cycle of living for yourself, that's going to destroy you. That's hell. Coming to to know the love of God for you, an eternal love. It's not just eternity past, the plan to redeem you, but the hope to be with you forever means you don't have to go try to find it somewhere else, wring it out of someone else's hands, or try to... uh, uh, Grasp it from something in this life because that's not going to work. And then if we have been saved, there's a whole new vision here of what it means to be in relationship to one another, serve each other, especially as a local body and community. We need to be others-oriented, folks, or we're not living the cycle. We're not glorifying God. You want in that circle? Hey, in that circle, you glorify someone else other than yourself. And that's when you find ultimate fulfillment. All right, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for this text. Thank you for all that it says. And only in heaven, will, only there will we fully, fully grasp just the wonder of this eternal reality. If someone needs you today, Father, I pray they'll, they'll seek someone out here today and give their life to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.